The next set of abstracts on gynecologic cancer were reviewed by Dr. Deborah Armstrong, beginning with a much-anticipated plenary paper on the timing of initiation of chemotherapy after relapse following primary surgery. Gynecologic cancer abstracts don't make it to the plenary session very often. And this is a study that we in the GYN oncology field have been hearing about for a long time now. And it's a study that was done primarily in England and Europe. And basically looking at the question of does making an early diagnosis of recurrent disease have an impact on outcome and survival. And with ovarian cancer, about 85% of patients will have a CA125 that's a pretty good marker that's reflective of disease. I would like to sort of step back and maybe we should say something about CA125, which is it's a glycoprotein that's expressed on the surface of cancer cells in ovarian cancer. It's not specific for ovarian cancer, and it doesn't tend to be a very good marker for early-stage disease, which is why it's not a great screening tool, because I know certainly there are proponents of using it for screening. But when somebody's been diagnosed with ovarian cancer and they have an elevated CA125, it actually is a pretty good reflection of disease and can be quite sensitive. And even changes within the normal range actually can be hallmarks of disease recurrence. That's been pretty well documented. And so the question has always been, how important is it to diagnose disease early and treat it early? And does that have an impact on outcome? And in this study, what they did was they took patients who are clinically in a complete remission at the end of initial therapy for ovarian cancer, and they had to have a normal CA125. And then the CA125 was measured every three months, and the groups were randomized to either the patient and the doctor being informed once the CA125 reached a limit of two times the upper limit of normal. So in the U.S., most of the assays have a normal of 35, so that would mean it got to 70. And in the other group, they weren't informed of it. And very clearly, you can look at the time to chemotherapy that patients who were informed, they started chemotherapy you know, within less than a month. It was 0.8 months. So the chemotherapy use started earlier. On average, patients and physicians who were not informed of the results of their CA125 started chemotherapy four to five months later. And interestingly, if you look at the overall survival, there's no difference for those two groups. There is additional chemotherapy, and actually the quality of life is a little bit less for the patients who started chemotherapy earlier. And so the, I think the real question then comes as to you know whether this is applicable to patients we treat in the United States. I will tell you that my personal feeling is we've always been a little probably schizophrenic about how we measure CA125s, which is in patients who've just finished chemotherapy, they're very addicted to their CA125 values. They want us to measure it often. We want to measure it often. When, in fact, the difference between somebody who recurs at three months and six months in terms of the efficacy of therapy probably isn't very great. And might even argue that going an extra three months might make cancer cells more susceptible to chemotherapy. They might lose some resistance mechanisms. But patients who are out longer, who are out 18 to 24 months from completion of chemotherapy, where, for example, if they have a solitary resectable lesion, you might operate on that. Your chance of getting those patients into a complete remission, again, is pretty high. And that's when we start to get more lax about the follow-up. This study clearly doesn't address issues of, is it better to know about a recurrence early if you're going to think about surgical debulking? Is there a group of patients who might benefit who are later out from their chemotherapy as opposed to early on? It didn't really separate those two out. I do think it can, for those of us in situations where we really want our patients to have some time to recover from chemotherapy, I think we can reassure our patients that close attention to symptoms is a perfectly legitimate way to follow them without doing aggressive CA125 monitoring. The Society for Gynecologic Oncology actually issued a statement afterward, and it you know, really said, I think we need to individualize our approach to patients. But I think this will result in somewhat of a sea change in how we follow our patients. 
I know you also have an interest in breast cancer, and yes. there's a similar issue in terms of tumor markers right. to detect metastatic disease. And I think ASCO even says you shouldn't do it. That's right. And yet we know from our patterns of care studies that a lot of people do That's do right. it. Do you see an analogy there? You know, I think it's a little bit different because I think most of our patients with ovarian cancer actually started out essentially with metastatic disease. I mean, we so rarely diagnose patients when they're organ confined. And also ovarian cancer actually is, even though the mortality rate is so much higher, stage for stage, it's actually probably better than breast cancer. And it responds to a lot of chemotherapy. So I think the situations aren't completely analogous. I guess the one thing that seems a little bit analogous to me is, you know, you might have some science in front of you like this presentation but you also have a patient, often an educated patient. And of course, the docs are aware of this. It's just pretty hard to close your eyes to this kind of information. Yeah. And those of us who take care of a lot of ovarian cancer patients who have followed them for a period of time, and we sometimes have patients where we really want to wait until we know there's disease, until our hand is really forced. I can recall one patient I had who had pretty severe Parkinson's disease, and the chemotherapy and potentially maybe even the antiemetics really worsened her disease and her symptoms during treatment. So when we were following our CA125, we decided to just follow the CA125 until we saw, and we were doing imaging as well, until we saw imaging evidence of disease. And she actually went a year and a half. Now, that's clearly the ends of the bell-shaped curve. And it took about a year and a half, and her CA125 was you know over 1,500 before she actually developed imageable disease. And in fact, she actually ended up having severe problems related to locked-in syndrome with worsening of her Parkinson's disease, and actually ended up not dying of ovarian cancer, but dying of complications of Parkinson's disease. So we made the right decision in that case. But I think there are certainly situations where treating based on the lab number probably isn't in the patient's best interest. There were a couple of papers looking at the issue of intraperitoneal therapy along with bevacizumab. Can you comment on them? Sure. Well, as we know, bevacizumab is FDA approved for breast, lung, and colorectal cancer. And in those diseases, it doesn't really have much single agent activity. It really works to make chemotherapy more effective. The studies were in patients who got chemotherapy with or without bevacizumab. In ovarian cancer, we actually have single-agent activity for bevacizumab. It actually has pretty well-documented activity. And so there's a lot of interest in whether adding bevacizumab to chemotherapy will sort of push the envelope and improve outcomes, and particularly for newly diagnosed patients. There are two sort of large multicenter randomized trials going on in newly diagnosed patients and two in patients with recurrent disease that are looking at whether the addition of bevacizumab adds to the outcomes of chemotherapy. One of them is GOG218, which is paclitaxel carboplatin with or without bevacizumab. And two of the three arms get bevacizumab with chemo. One additionally gets extended bevacizumab afterward. And when you say extended, out to a year? It actually goes to a total of 15 months. And they use that because it was the median time to progression for the patients who just got chemotherapy. Before we get into these two papers, just a word about that. Any discussions? I'm sure there must be a lot of discussions that have gone on as they are in all tumor types looking at bevacizumab about the colon adjuvant study that was reported, particularly the fact that even though it was, quote, negative, the fact that while the drug was on board, it looked like it was having a pretty big effect. 
Once it stopped, the curves started to come together. Dr. Walmart raised the question of duration. Yeah. I'm sure this is being discussed within GYN. You know, it is. And I think we're certainly a fair bit behind the other diseases because we don't even have right now the data that we know it has single agent activity, but maybe it doesn't even have additive activity. Maybe we aren't even going to get that increase in percentage. So I think we would consider it a luxury to be able to be addressing that issue of duration if we knew it improved the outcomes from chemotherapy. So I think within the next few months, at least certainly within the next year, we will have information from some of those studies. The other study is an ICON trial that's being done. It's a pretty simple study, basically paclitaxel carbo with or without bevacizumab. It's not blinded. It includes an extended period of time for the bevacizumab. And then there's two in the recurrent setting. One is GOG213, which is paclitaxel carboplatin with or without bevacizumab, and the OCEANS trial, which is gemcitabine carboplatin with or without bevacizumab. But with the data that we have that intraperitoneal therapy actually improves outcomes for optimally to bulk patients, there's certainly an interest in using bevacizumab. There's also concerns because you certainly have the potential to have more GI types of toxicities. And one of the things we have seen in ovarian cancer that's somewhat unique compared to other diseases is a fairly high rate of GI perforation. One study was actually stopped because at 44 patients, there were five GI perforations. And that's not something we actually see in ovarian cancer sort of spontaneously or even in the setting of chemotherapy. It doesn't happen all that often. So that seemed to clearly be related to the treatment. But if you go back and look at the CTEP database of all the studies of using bevacizumab in ovarian cancer, the rate's about 5%. And that's compared to about one5 to 2% in colorectal cancer and breast cancer. So it's clearly increased. That may be because there's a propensity for serosal surfaces of the intestines to be involved with disease, almost like a steel phenomenon where the blood vessel formation for the tumors to grow. And then when you actually interrupt that, you really just basically now have a hole in the bowel wall. And that may be the issue. But clearly when you're giving intraperitoneal therapy, you're putting more stress on the bowel in that situation as well. So there's been you know, a lot of concern about if we find an improved outcome for adding bevacizumab to IV chemotherapy, and we want to use that with IP chemotherapy, which in some subgroups of ovarian cancer has a better outcome, we'd like to be able to know we can do that safely. So I guess these are two phase two studies that yes. address that question. And these were studies, you know, small phase two studies really looking at sort of the safety feasibility issue. I think they both show that it's pretty feasible to give in both of these studies, as with the IV studies with newly diagnosed patients, the bevacizumab isn't started until the second cycle, so you have a little more time to heal up from surgery. And in both cases, there was a small rate of sort of typical bevacizumab toxicities, not that was felt to be you know undue, but in one of the studies, there was some hypertension, there was one bowel perforation. And so I think they're not seeing undue toxicities, and that this does appear to be feasible. There's also a study that just closed to accrual. There's still patients being treated that's being done through the GYN SPORE collaborations, and that's essentially an all-IP regimen that gives weekly IP taxol and every three-week IP carboplatin and using bevacizumab, again, starting with cycle two as well. And but so, the bevacizumab is obviously IV. It is IV, yes. Although you can give bevacizumab IP. There's a small study from Egypt a couple of years ago looking at that. So Interesting. Yeah. Now, are there any phase three trials out there right now looking at this issue of BEV with intraperitoneal therapy? There's not right now, but the next GOG trial for optimal patients will 
have three arms on it. The first arm is actually going to be looking at using weekly taxol intravenously. There will be an IV arm on it, but it's using that Japanese study that was presented at ASCO last year, looking at weekly IV taxol with every three-week IV carboplatin that showed a significant improvement in outcome for patients compared to the every three-week regimen. So that's going to be the IV arm. Then there will be an IP arm with cisplatin and bevacizumab and an IP arm with carboplatin as the IP platinum agent and bevacizumab. So that study is probably going to open up within the next few months. Now, have you yourself treated any patients on or off study with intraperitoneal therapy and bevacizumab? I'm participating in that study through the Interspore collaboration. So yes, we actually have. The gynecologic oncology group has been piloting some intraperitoneal carboplatin regimens for that upcoming phase three trial, and those are now adding bevacizumab in, and we have those open as well. So one final question about this. I've been trying to figure out some of the hemodynamic stuff related to ascites and the belly and bevacizumab. I hear about patients, for example, who have great responses to ascites. What about intraperitoneal therapy and sort of the hemodynamics? Does Bev seem to have any adverse or even positive effects? At this point in time, we are doing pharmacokinetics with the study that we've done, and we don't have the results of those yet. So we actually will be looking at, and I didn't go into great detail, but in the first cycle with bevacizumab, which is the second cycle, we're not giving it with the carboplatin. We're giving it later. And so we're doing pharmacokinetics to try and look at that issue of whether it has an impact. I will say that this is Carolyn Krasner's trial that she's reported the last couple of years at ASCO. And one of the things that Carolyn did was she's looked at, compared the sort of first IP cycle and the last IP cycle and looking at the pharmacokinetics. And one thing we do know is that repeated IP, and these patients are getting intraperitoneal treatments weekly, that there isn't a change in the overall systemic exposure or the curves so that it's not as though you're doing something to the peritoneal cavity with repeated administration that's changing the absorption. So we also pulled a few abstracts to talk about related to relapse disease. And it's one of my favorite trial names. I like it, Calypso, Calypso. study. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a great name. <laughs> so can you talk about what they looked at? Sure. And Calypso stands for calyx, which is the name for pigulated liposomal doxorubicin that's used in Europe. And this was a study looking at liposomal doxorubicin and carboplatin compared to paclitaxel carboplatin. And the regimen used a little bit lower dose than we standard when we used liposomal doxorubicin alone. So it used 30 milligrams per meter squared with carboplatin at an AUC of 5. And sort of winning on the convenience, it's given once every four weeks, every 28 days, compared to a pretty standard paclitaxel carboplatin with a paclitaxel dose of 175 and carboplatin AUC of 5 given every three weeks. And this is in recurrent platinum-sensitive patients. And this was reported actually last year at ASCO in 2008 with regard to the toxicities. And it was shown that the PLD carboplatin arm had less overall toxicity and was better tolerated. Was that mainly neuropathy? So there's an improvement. Obviously, there's more hand-foot syndrome, the palmer plantar dys-PPE, but less myelosuppression, less alopecia, less neurotoxicity. So I think overall, from a toxicity perspective, better. And this was actually a non-inferiority study, so it was a pretty large study, and the goal was basically to show that it wasn't inferior to use this combination. And in fact, they actually showed that the combination was slightly superior, 
picolated liposomal doxorubicin. And I think this is something that will probably lead to something of a bit of a sea change in how we treat patients with recurrent disease. I think there's a big move to gemcitabine and carboplatin after the AGO study was reported. And I think with the improvement in toxicity, the more convenient every four-week schedule, I think this will be utilized. And interestingly, you know, we actually have pretty good data in ovarian cancer that when we use taxanes in a different way in the recurrent setting, they actually almost act like a new drug. So weekly paclitaxel using docetaxel, they all almost act like a new drug. And so to me, it makes sense that you can now use in a platinum-sensitive patient, platinum plus a different agent. And then potentially when you go back to using a taxane differently, such as weekly paclitaxel or docetaxel, you're probably going to get more bang for your buck. You probably get a better outcome having not had to use so much taxane and better tolerability without the neurotoxicity. Have these data actually changed what you're doing? I have to tell you that there are probably, I saw several patients for second opinions in the last month or so before ASCO, and a fair number of people who were poised to start on liposomal doxorubicin and carboplatin if this came out as we had hoped and it did, and it did. So we knew it was going to be presented at ASCO. So we have a few patients who've been waiting till ASCO before they started their recurrent disease. So yeah, I think it probably will. So I was really interested to see what your take was on this paper, which was a phase two trial looking at an oral PARP inhibitor, Olaparib. Yeah. I actually interviewed Joyce O'Shaughnessy, who did a meeting presentation on breast cancer on yeah. another of these PARP inhibitors. And of course, there was a breast cancer presentation in BRCA1 yep. patients looking at this same, is it Olaparib? Yes, I think that's how they pronounce it. I have to admit, I've heard it pronounced two different ways. So, so anyhow, but interesting, because I think this one is a PARP1N2 inhibitor in any event. Can you talk about what was seen here in terms of patients with BRCA-deficient ovarian cancer? Yeah, and again, this is another one where we've actually had seen some earlier data at previous ASCOs, and this is the updated data. You know, there clearly is a lot of interest in using PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer. We know that about 10% of ovarian cancers are related to germline BRCA mutations, and that the BRCA proteins are actually important in repairing double-strand DNA damage. And the PARP inhibitors actually inhibit single-strand DNA repair mechanisms, which are really the backup when these double-strand repair mechanisms don't work. So there's lots of interest in using these, for example, in combination with chemotherapy in patients with BRCA-deficient ovarian cancer. And so in this study, they used the agents alone. And I have to say, I think surprisingly, you know, we have seen that these are active when you use them by themselves. And what that tells me is that we know that there's enough genetic changes in advanced cancers, including ovarian cancer, that they're probably undergoing spontaneous DNA breaks at a fairly rapid rate, and that normally these are repaired, and that by blocking the repair of these, that you actually get some activity, some anti-cancer activity when you use this agent by itself. Can you talk more specifically about what they saw in terms of efficacy, also in terms of the two doses? Because it kind of looked the same as what was seen in breast cancer with a little bit more activity at the higher dose. Yeah, they started out with a dose of 400, and they had some activity in other trials and some preclinical to suggest that you might be able to get pretty good inhibition with 100 milligram BID dose, and the starting dose in this was 400 BID. So they sort of added that on. I will say that they saw more activity at the 400 BID dose, and so I think that's probably the one that they're going to take forward. But they actually saw responses. They saw in the 400 milligram BID dose, two out of 33 patients with CRs and nine patients with PRs. Interestingly, if they break those patients down based on whether they're platinum sensitive or platinum resistant, it does seem to be the platinum 
sensitive patients that have the most activity. And there's actually interesting data from the University of Washington looking at patients with BRCA gene-related ovarian cancers that they actually can have another mutation that reverts them to wild-type BRCA status in the platinum-resistant population. And that may be part of the mechanism for them to become platinum-resistant. So it may be that some of these patients who are platinum-resistant actually now have intact BRCA protein function. And that may be why the PARP inhibitors aren't working so well for them. What about the actual numbers? And also, you know, they had a couple waterfall plots in yep. there, which I always like. I don't see too many of those, but it looked like most of the patients actually had some objective signs of tumor regression. Yeah. If you look at change in CA125, between two-thirds and three-quarters of patients had some decline in CA125. There was only about 20 to 25 percent whose best response was a rise in CA125. And again, that was a greater percentage if patients were platinum sensitive. If you look at the response based on platinum sensitivity, in the 400, they actually saw some differences that were a little antithetical to what some of the other studies had shown previously. In the 100 milligram dose, they saw a 25% response rate in platinum sensitive, 6% in platinum resistant, but then almost the converse, which was in the higher dose, they saw 38% response rate in platinum resistant and 14% in platinum sensitive. But, you know, we're getting down to pretty small numbers here, so it's hard to know if there's any dose phenomenon or if that's really just an overall. I think the take-home message is the PARP inhibitors work by themselves when you give them to BRCA-associated ovarian cancers. And if they're going to work even better when you use that in combination with something that damages DNA and now the DNA can't be repaired. And remember, that's a phenomenon that's almost exclusive to the cancer cells because those patients in normal cells still have functioning BRCA protein. You almost have selective toxicity for the cancer cell when you do that. And, of course, that was kind of the strategy of the breast cancer presentation by Joyce O'Shaughnessy where they actually gave the chemo, which is, I think, carbo. Jim uh, Carbo. Yeah. You know, those patients weren't selected for being BRCA positive. They were triple negatives, which is the phenotype of BRCA1 associated breast cancer. So one would have to assume that's an enriched population for BRCA positivity. But maybe it's just the phenotype of that cancer. And that's, you know, triple negative breast cancer is something we really desperately need better treatments for. What about this paper in endometrial cancer looking at bevacizumab? So I guess to sort of finish the trifecta, you know, of GYN malignancies, we've seen activity, single agent activity of bevacizumab in ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, and now this is a study done in uterine cancer, which also shows some activity. You know, not huge response rates, around 15%, but between 35 and 40% of patients who are progression-free at six months. So certainly seeing more activity than we've seen in the non-gynecologic cancers, I guess with the potential exception of renal cell carcinoma. But for some reason, you know, some persistent, something about the malaria and cancers that somehow seem to make them more sensitive to VEGF, that they're more VEGF dependent and making them more sensitive to VEGF inhibition. Yeah, I think when people think about ovarian cancer, somehow the gestalt of a vascular-driven tumor, just like renal cell, kind of comes through. When I think about endometrial cancer and cervical cancer, I think more about like a solid tumor. Yeah. And there are some histologic subtypes of endometrial cancer, in particular the uterine papillary serous cancers that really, I mean, they act in every way, shape, and form very much like an ovarian cancer. They have a high propensity for spread, even when there's very limited disease in the endometrium, high propensity for upper abdominal disease. But that's not a common histologic subtype. It's, you know, somewhere 10 to 20 percent. And I don't think the study was heavily weighted toward those. It is going to be heavily weighted probably more toward the high-grade cancers that are more aggressive and less responsive to hormonal therapy.